Good morning. My dad is a poet, and I am not. But I decided to bless you this morning with a, a, a poem that my dad wrote. Um, when he came home from the hospital after his stroke, one of the first things he did was to go to his study and to come up with his packet of, of uh, poems that he had written. And so I have uh, on the screen, I have uh, one of his poems based upon Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence comes my help? My help comes from God. As I look toward these mountains, sometimes they are hidden by the clouds. I know, though, they are there. At other times, as I look at them, they stand out dazzlingly clear. It seems I could touch them. Each day I must remember that steadfast mountains do not move, whether seen or not. And so it is with the living God. We do not always sense his presence with equal force each day. This may be due to our tired eyes, the crowded surroundings we are in, or to our movement. But God is there. We're in his care. Lovingly, he knows all about us. My help comes from God, who made heaven and earth, and you and me. This is a characteristic stroke of my dad and Mount St. Helens. <laughs> I, I write that to tell you that, that whatever poetry is in the family genes, it missed me. And, and I'm the guy who in literature class in college on an essay test said to my professor, I wouldn't waste my time to read that poem. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't do particularly well in that class. But uh, I have been working a little more at poems, especially since they're in Scripture. And uh, this, is, uh, this text that we have is a great text, and it is a great piece of poetry, as, as I think you can, uh, you can tell. It's, it's, it's a text that we need to understand if we will understand the whole of the text that we are looking at, meaning chapters 4 and 5. So there are some things that we need to know about this uh, poem that may be helpful to us. It is the second half of our text. And if you'll notice now, I think it's very clear that these have been sort of welded together because when you look at the end of chapter 4, it talks about Israel growing stronger and stronger uh, until Jabin the Canaanite king is destroyed. But what would we have expected right after that in all of the sentences, instances beforehand? And Israel had peace for X number of years, right? Where does that come? It comes at the end of verse 31 in chapter 5. Then the land had peace for 40 years. So what it does is the last sentence or, or, or a line there in, in uh, verse 31 is not a part of the poem. The poem has been set in between so that it is a part of this whole story. And, and I think we need to understand that uh, if we're to, to really gain an appreciation for what it says. Uh, it's not new to have an interpretive poem in Scripture. And, and the most popular one, the most well-known one, would be Exodus chapter 15, right? The Israelites pass through the Red Sea, the sea closes in, it drowns the uh, Egyptian army, and so on. And then 
Israel sings the song, the song of Moses. And that song exposes in poetic way the, the, the bigger picture. And, and what you see is that it is the God of Israel who is caring for his people. And, and in dramatic poetic language, it talks about the Egyptians sinking like a rock to the bottom and, and, and about how God has come to the aid of his people. And it, at the end of that song, you remember, it basically says the kings of Canaan are going to hear and they are going to panic in terror and God is going to give us victory. So it's not just a record of God's work in the past. It is a prophecy of what God is going to do in the future. A very, very significant uh, poem in Exodus chapter 15. We know from chapter 5 that the poem is written by Deborah. And we know from chapter 4 that Deborah is a prophetess, correct? And so I think it's safe to say, not only that this is an inspired portion of Scripture, it is prophecy. It is prophecy. And by that I mean prophecy gives us a wide-angle view of the events that have taken place. It looks at it in terms of what's happened in the past. It looks at it in terms of what's happening in the future. And it looks at it in terms of who it is who's really brought this to pass. That is, it gives us a God-centered view of events where if we only look at the details of chapter 4, we may not appreciate what God has been doing uh, as much. So it really is the key to understanding the events of chapter 4, and that's why I decided to break uh, our text into two pieces and deal with chapter 4 last week and to deal with chapter 5 this week. Now, I'm going to take a rather quick walk through the uh, the song because we've got 31 verses and, and uh, that doesn't give a whole lot of uh, spare time if you want to get home before the roast is smoking. And so we'll, we'll kind of move at a rapid pace through the song and then look at some of the uh, things that I think are important for the ancient Israelites as well as for us to learn from it. The occasion you see in verses 1 and 2, and let me just uh, read those again. On the day that Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. The occasion is clearly the victory that God has given Israel over Jabin, uh, this Canaanite king, and in particular, Sisera, his commander, uh, who has engaged them in, in battle. But uh, notice uh, this theme that, that it sets right at the beginning, and that is it's about leadership. It is about leadership. The praise is praise to God. This is a song of praise. Praising God for what? Praising God that the leaders led and that the people followed. Now, you really need to mark that in your mind. This is about leadership. And so when you get off into the discussions that the feminists would have about Deborah, we must agree, this song is about leadership. The question is, is it about Deborah being the leader or not? That is the question, and this song answers that, I think, very, very clearly. 
Now look at the warning that's given to the heathen leaders. When it says in verses 3 through 5, Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. It's not talking to Israelites. Israelites didn't have kings at that point, right? There was no king in Israel at, at that moment of time. It's talking to the heathen kings. And so here are the people of God emboldened by the victory that God has given them. And they're singing this song that says, Listen up, you Canaanite kings. Uh, and and uh, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to him. I'm not singing to your gods. I'm singing to my God, to Israel's God. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, this is, this is kind of an interesting text in verse 4 because it, it talks about God going out from Seir and, and uh, Edom, which is just a synonym for Edom. But you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. When, when, did, when did this happen? I think this is where this, the, the song looks back in history because you will notice you've got Seir, Edom, and then you've got Sinai in verse 5. So here's the way I look at it. What it's saying is the victory we experienced here is simply an extension of the victory that began when God led his people out of Egypt, when he manifested himself. Now, you've got to remember, too, that the Canaanites believed that their gods were nature gods. So their god was the god of the storm. Their gods were the gods of fertility and crops and whatever. And so what the, what the, the song writer, what Deborah sang, and what the people are singing is this. We serve and we worship the God of Israel. The God of Israel is not some local deity. Remember when the, uh, when the Israelites won the battle and, and the, uh, and the, uh, this was the, uh, Arameans, Syrians said, well, that's because the battle was on the mountain. They serve the God of the mountains, but we serve the God of the plains. This text is saying, no, God is not a localized deity. He is the God of all the earth. He is the God who is in control of all of nature. And so when he manifested himself at Sinai, he manifested himself in a way that the clouds uh, dropped their rains, that the, that the earth shook and the mountains had an earthquake. That's the God. The God we serve is the God who is in control of all of nature. Now, when we come then down to verses 6 through 11, it's... It's, these are really, I think, some of the critical verses of, of this psalm, as though all of them aren't important. But listen to what it says. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. Ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. That's the title she chooses for herself. That's the glory. That's the honor she gives to herself in this, in this song. When they chose new gods, that would be the Israelites, war came to the city gates, not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, that, that would be the, the rich and the affluent. And you who walk along the road, that would be those who are not so rich. 
Consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. In other words, this is a song that is now being dispersed throughout all of Israel. And when you sit at the watering hole and you're watering your flocks or when you're in various places, people are singing this song. And he's saying, consider this song as, as you go about your way and your life. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up. Break out in song. Arise, O Barak, take captive your captives, O son of Abinoam. So this is establishing the time and the characteristics of that period of time. It's very interesting that he says that these were in the days of Shamgar. Notice that in verse 6. He's saying to himself, so what does that say? Well, we know Shamgar, right, from chapter 3, last verse, verse 31 of chapter 3. That's the one verse where it says that he took an ox goad, and with that ox goad he killed 600 Philistines. Now, what he's telling us here is that the days of Jael... The days of Deborah, the days that are described in chapter 4, are also the days of Shamgar, correct? Now, when you look at this description that's going to come to us in in, in a few verses, and it's going to say, these are the Israelite tribes that went to battle against the Canaanites. And these are the tribes that did not. Two tribes are missing, Judah and Simeon. And you say to yourself, well, they're missing, but they're not condemned. Why would that possibly be? Okay, it's the days of Shamgar. He killed 600 Philistines. We're talking here in our text about Jabin, who is a Canaanite king. So he's slightly to the east and north. Uh, that is his kingdom would be Philistines are to the west I would take it that Israel was waging wars on two fronts and the reason why Judah and Simeon are not condemned is because they're engaged fighting the Philistines that's what Shamgar was doing at the same time that they're fighting Canaanites so this little incidental marker as it were solves a problem for me that I wouldn't have had solved had it not mentioned him specifically as being a contemporary. How bad did things get? Things got so bad, there was such lawlessness that people did not dare to go on the major thoroughfares. They did not dare to live in the villages because, and we'll see that partly from the description that Sisera's mother gives, it was not safe to do so. Israel could not arm itself, Israel could not fortify itself, and that meant that those Canaanite armies could come and they could take whatever they want, and people just headed for the hills. So it was not a good time for Israel, and as that text tells us, they were not armed. This was not a good time to start a battle with the Canaanites. Want to put it in those terms? Communication's bad, transportation's bad, and there aren't any weapons. Not a great time to start a war. It's exactly when God is going to command Barak to do so. So Israel is not in good shape, but God nevertheless is calling them to be obedient. So when you look then at at verses uh, 9 through 11, 
you see this, uh, this victory that God is going to proclaim. I have actually had the thought when, when this, when I was looking at this song, and in particular the first expression, on the day that Deborah and Barak sang, and I'm not absolutely convinced that the day they sang it is the day before the battle. It may well be the day of the battle, and it might well be the battle song. Not sure about that. It seems to me from the details that are given in terms of the non-involvement of certain tribes that has to take place after that initial battle that takes place with Sisera. It has to because there's more battle and you see that clearly in chapter 4 and verse 24. The battle with Jabin does not end with the battle with Sisera. They're emboldened with the battle of Sisera. So I'll get back to that to that point in just a minute. But now you have this story that is circulated, this song that is circulated about the victory of the Lord. And because of God acting in this mighty way and people singing to one another about it, it says, then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Remember it said the war came to their gates? Well, they weren't there. <laughs> they had headed out to the villages. Now they come down to the gates to engage in battle because they are emboldened by the, 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 the word that God indeed is, is with his people. Now, in verses 12 and following, you look at the participants who are engaged and those who are not engaged. I call them participants and bench warmers. And the bench warmers are not exactly commended, as you can tell in this text, but they are named. Isn't it interesting? God takes note of who engages in the battle and who does not. And he has words for both of them uh, when you see it. But this, this verse 12 is, to me, is a very critical verse. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up. Break out in song. Arise, O Barak. Take captive your captives, O son of Abinoam. It seems to me that this text clearly delineates the responsibility and the authority here. What is Deborah's gift? Prophecy, right? So, as a prophet, she goes, uh, summons actually, Barak, and she says, God has commanded you to go to battle. You assemble... These two Israelite tribes go on Mount Tabor. I'm going to bring Sisera. I'm going to lure Sisera there, and I'm going to defeat him. But that's what you're to do. So as a prophetess, she speaks for God to Barak and gives him the command to go to war. Now, in our text, in verse 12 of chapter 5, what is her task? And, and I'm saying this because I, I fear that too many people read this and they think that somehow you got Deborah and Barak riding along side by side like the Lone Ranger and Tonto going off to war. And, and somehow that Deborah is, is in this huge military thing. What is her task? To write this song. I believe that that is her function as a prophetess. She is writing as one who is inspired of God. She is writing words that encourage 
the leaders in Israel to do what God has commanded them from Barak right on down. That is her mission as I see it. So the job description is clearly spelled out. Deborah is to write the song. Barak is to lead into battle. That's that's their functions. And I think we would be wrong if we see it in, in any other way. Now, look at the willing participants. Deborah and Barak, of course. Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir, which would probably be Manasseh, or at least part of Manasseh. You see that because Machir is Manasseh's son. Um, and and then you have, uh, after uh, Machir, Zebulun, Issachar. And then in verse 18, you have this specification. Here are those two tribes that were most heroic, Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were the two tribes that God had called out to lead, to go up first into battle, right? To gather up on Mount Tabor to engage in battle. And then these other tribes would, uh, would join in in the future. Then there's the bench warmers in verses 15b through 17. Reuben, Gilead, which would talk about those Transjordan peoples. They don't specifically name which tribes, maybe all of them, but those who were across the Jordan, east of the Jordan, would be referred to as Gilead, Dan, and Asher. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. When it talks about Reuben, it talks about him as having much searching of heart. It is not that Reuben didn't know he was called. It is not that Reuben did not know he should go. He goes through this agony of soul and he makes the decision not to go. And I think if you look at every one of those instances, the reason is they're too busy with business at home. They're too busy doing what they're doing and they just don't have time and it wouldn't be to their economic advantage to stop what they're doing. And so, you know, it's it's like that parable where the, the Lord... The, invites men to his banquet and, and they say, well, I just bought some oxen and, you know, I got this property I just got and I'm just too busy. That's what you see. It is not that they didn't know where they should be. It was that they made a willful choice not to unite with their fellow Israel uh, Israelites in battle. And that to me is a, is a pretty uh, sad state of affairs uh, as far as Israel is concerned. By the way, later on, do you remember when, when uh, the, the uh, Benjamite city that is so corrupt uh, now has to be judged? And so that ends up being a battle with the Benjamites versus the other tribes. After that war has been waged and the Benjamites have been nearly decimated uh, almost uh, to non-existence, they say to themselves, which tribe did not go to battle with us? And, and what they conclude is, Jabesh Gilead, not the tribe, but Jabesh Gilead did not go. And so they went and slaughtered them because they had not entered into the battle. And that was considered to be a most serious offense. Okay, now look at, at, at this, uh, the, the futility of fighting that's port, uh, portrayed for us in, in verses 19 through uh, 22. Now you see the, the futility of the Canaanite kings in, engaging in this battle because God not only uh, uses his army. In fact, the emphasis here is not, look what great fighters these guys were. The emphasis is God summoned nature. 
And it is God who defeated the foes. So these people aren't all pumped up like you see, you know, guys at the football game after they've got a touchdown and they're banging up against each other and doing all this stuff like, man, are we great. It's none of that. They're singing this song. And this song says, isn't God great? Yes, we got to participate. It was God that summoned nature to his cause. Kings came, they fought, verse 19. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh and and the waters of Megiddo. Interestingly, because this is toward the west, uh, getting closer to the Mediterranean Sea, and and yet the kingdom, at least where uh, Jabin lived, was to the north and somewhat to the east. So you've got this uh, convergence of troops and so on. They did all these things, but they carried off no silver and no plunder. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Here's the Kishon River that works its way out to the Mediterranean. And and if indeed God brought a cloudburst, and, and I can imagine that, you know, the, we, I showed you last week a picture of those planes. So here you have these flat planes, and all of a sudden you have a cloudburst, and off of the hills rushes all this water. It's called a flash flood for around here. So you have this huge flash flood. So now all these chariots, these awesome uh, vehicles of death for the Israelites, stuck in the mud. So badly so that Sisera jumps off his and runs. His chariot is not doing him any good. God employs nature to bring the, 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 uh, the Canaanite armies to their knees, literally, and, and they are destroyed. And that's what this thing says. And, and so the Israelites, as they sing this song and as they realize it's God who is fighting for them and with them, they're saying, be strong. And this is a song, I believe, that they carried then into further and future battles that were coming uh, very, very shortly. Now, verse 23 is the curse on Meraz. Nobody really knows where that city is, but we all assume uh, that it is an Israelite city. It is a city that knew its responsibility, and, and somehow it may have been at a very critical location in all of this battle, and yet they did not come to the aid of their fellow Israelites. And it's the angel of the Lord who says, curse it, Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Now, believe me, God didn't need them. He won the battle without them. That's not the point. The point is they did not identify with God. They did not choose to put their lot with him and with his people. And so that curse comes upon them. Now, the way I see this, is verse 23, now you've got the, my favorite, my favorite woman, Jael, uh, with those calloused hands and those big shoulder muscles from driving the, the tent pegs all of her life, wondering what in the world life was about, having to drive tent pegs as much as she did. Look at, she is placed right between the curse on Meraz and Sisera's mother. And that is no accident. Here is Meraz that is an Israelite city. Jael is not an Israelite, correct? She's a Kenite, as the text tells us. She's not an Israelite. So she already is at a point where she could say, 
Not me. I don't have any obligation to this. Those who are going to battle are men. She's a woman. Now, I know that doesn't count today, but it did then. And, and, and so she couldn't go to battle. And so she could have said, well, who am I? I'm, I'm just a mere woman. I'm just a, a, just a housewife. I, all I do is make uh, that, that special milk drink and do those blankets <laughs> like I covered the Sisera with and all that. And, and who am I? And her husband had made a covenant with Jabin not to do him harm. So all she has to say is, not an Israelite, I'm not a warrior, and my husband's already made a deal with, with Jabin. I'm out of this thing. And here's Merez, an Israelite city, who was at the critical moment at critical time, and they should have been there, and they weren't. Who's the hero in that story, right? Now, for all of those... Oh, I better watch my language. For all of those who, who want to be sissified about the way in which uh, uh, Sisera dies... As, as though, you know, there's just something horrible and ugly about, about this woman who has deceitfully gone about this. Well, you will remember that uh, Ehud was a little secretive about his weapons and everything else that he said to Eglon. So in war, deception is not out of the book. It's, it's a part of the rules for, for war. But I want you to look for a moment at uh, Sisera's mother. Because it seems to me that when we look at her, if we look carefully, then what we will see is there was every reason for Sisera to die and to die the way in which he did. God is always just in the punishment he brings. Now, I can't read this text to you as literally as it is. All I can say to you is when I was in college and I worked for a catering outfit, we catered a, a, a meal for a very affluent group of people. And it was, it was my part of my responsibility to be bringing food in and out in this thing after these people had gotten good and drunk. I had never heard such words from the mouths of sophisticated women. Never in my life. College kid, I'm thinking, what is this? And when I look at what Sisera's mother says, it reminded me of that day. I mean, look at, here you have uh, Jael, this, this nomad woman who, who is part of the peasantry. Here's this sophisticated, aristocratic woman, a woman, uh, uh, Sisera's mother, not named interestingly enough. Uh, here she is with all of her helpers, I'll bet, I'll bet you Jael would have liked a little help around the kitchen and a few other things driving those tent pegs. She didn't get it. And, and here's, here's uh, Sisera's mother with her, her beautifully done nails, you know, and her hair in, in a nice do and all that. And, and here's Jael, probably looking a little haggard. I don't suspect that she looked her best. Hey, Sisera dropped in uninvited. She didn't have a chance to, to, you know, do her best with whatever she had. So here you have these two very, very different women. But look at what Sisera's mother does. This is a, an amazing uh, description uh, when you start at verse 28. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is, what is, why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? He's late for dinner. 
The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing spoils? A girl or two for each man. Here's the crass part. I'm not going to tell you what it says. But you notice that in the ESV it says a womb or two. She's speaking in the crudest of terms about what her son is doing. He is raping village girls and she's distressed that he's so late in, in doing this. But she's like, I hate to say it, she's like a mafia mother. You know, where, where, oh, she loves her children and she loves her good life and she just closes her eyes to what brought that stuff to her table. And, and all she can think about is when my boy comes home, he's going to bring me a whole new bolt of material so I can do all kinds of clothes. Look at it. I mean, do you think that when you see her callousness, what do you think her son is like? She knows her son. She knows what he's doing. And we're a little uptight because he gets a tent peg in the brain? I just don't understand. Why are we trying to, to somehow come at jail as though she's done some terrible thing? This guy got what he deserved. And I think this text is here to say to us, Look, look at this wonderful woman, Jail who isn't an Israelite, but she identifies with Israel. She isn't like Meraz, and she certainly isn't like Mama Sisera. She's simply a woman who has identified herself with God, and she has identified herself with the people of God. And let me tell you, when she drove that tent peg, she put a line in the sand that she could never cross back over. Now, I can imagine... What would have happened if, if uh, Jael's husband happened to have come home when Sisera showed up? It would have been a different story. But you see, if he had protected Sisera, then they would have become the enemies of Israel. And, and you know that when um, um, Barak arrives and he finds the dead body, he arrives armed and ready to do in whoever enemies he might find. And that would include anybody who gave protection to Sisera. So all I'm saying to you is this story helps put things in, in perspective for me. Uh, and then you'll notice the last verse, the, the, all the uh, uh, lines except the last one. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. God, bless the people who love you and identify with you. And God, be with those enemies. Note who those enemies are. And may they bear your curse. So whether you identify with Israel or not, whether you identify with God or not, is the basis for either cursing or blessing. People must decide. And then it says, then the land had peace for 40 years. Now, when we come to the conclusion, I'm going to sound a little bit like Adrian Monk. I have to admit, that's one of the TV programs, the few TV programs I enjoy. But you remember where he says, here's what happened? Well, that's what I'm going to say. Here's what happened. Now, as I look at chapter 4 in the light of chapter 5, here's the way I understand the events uh, coming together. 
Israel is in distress, as we saw from chapter 5, and we, we certainly know from the early part of chapter 4. They have been in disobedience to God. God has given them over to Jabin, and they have had uh, 20 years of agonizing, uh, cruel oppression. And, and uh, then God, uh, uh, through his prophetess, uh, Deborah, summons Barak, issues him the orders about who to gather, about where to assemble, Mount Tabor, and, the, and then he promises that he will lure Sisera out and that he will give them over uh, to them in, in victory. So uh, Deborah, I have those reversed, Deborah goes with Barak, uh, and then he summons uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, those two lead uh, nations, and they were very much involved in terms of physical proximity. They would have been the, those most directly impacted. But they then become the leaders that gather at Mount Tabor. When they assemble, and I take, I take it that that assembly, 10,000 of them, that's going to take a while for 10,000 Israeli troops to leave their farms and whatever and find themselves up there on Mount Tabor. And you can imagine, it says that when, Jay, when, when Sisera heard so he's getting intelligence reports about a gathering, a concentration of, of Israelites at Mount Tabor, and he begins to say to himself, oh, that's a perfect spot for my chariots. I can't wait to harness up those 900 chariots and get my troops, and they'll be just like sitting ducks up there. They have to come down, and when they do, we're going to pick them off. And you know, they go then. God uh, seemingly opens the heavens, sends the floodwaters, uh, disables the chariots and and sends the uh, the troops in 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 flight and 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 uh, panic and the Israelites uh, slaughter all of them and ultimately Sisera himself is is uh, dead as well. So Israel defeats Sisera. Then I believe, as I read this song, then this song is circulated. Now, remember the defeat of Sisera on that particular occasion. The defeat of Sisera and, and his men is not the end of Jabin. That happens over a period of time, just as God said he would do with the Canaanites. He wouldn't drive them out immediately. So this incident emboldens the Israelites, and this song spreads out amongst the Israelites and lets them know, not only have we won... But we won because God was on our side. God summoned nature. And if we take those uh, words in, in the song, and you got to now look at, at those who involved themselves and those who did not. Either this is prophetic and it's saying, here's what's going to happen, and you need to take warning. That would cause Reuben to get a little consternation. Or it is written later after the event and added to the song before it is placed in the scriptural text. But the bottom line is, during that period of time, the other tribes of Israel recognize the victory that's been won, but it is not a total rout. They have not rid themselves yet of the specter of Jabin and, and, his, and all of the armies that he has, even though Sisera has been defeated. So it is not until after that that the other Israelite tribes are engaged and they then assemble and they continue that battle until Jabin is finally utterly destroyed. That's the way I understand the story. So in a sense, the account that we read in chapter 4 is not the end, it is the beginning. 
It is the victory that God gives which sets in motion this course of events and the song is part of the battle song that is sung to encourage Israelites to step forward. And that's why there's such an emphasis on the leaders leading and people following. Because there's a battle that is yet to be won. The leaders need to be courageous and the people need to follow their courageous leaders into battle to finish the job. That's what happened so far as I understand it. Now, let's talk about what that means. This poem is the key to understanding Deborah's role. As I understand it, it's the key to understanding Deborah's role in terms of leadership. And it certainly is corrective to some of the modern interpretation that's given. Her role is clear in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4 and in verse uh, 12 of chapter 5. She is a prophetess. She is not a warrior. She is a prophetess. She was God's spokesman through whom God gave commands to Barak to go to war, right? She is the one who wrote this song through whom Israelites are emboldened and encouraged to go to war. She is the one as a prophetess who now interprets what God has done in the bigger scheme so that Israelites recognize the mighty God, the God who delivered them out of Egypt, the God who promised them victory as they went into Canaan, is the God who gave this victory, and indeed He is the God who will give them absolute victory in the end. That's her role. That's her contribution. But it is not, as some would think, to take over because somehow there was weak leadership. In this song, if you want a woman who is, is held forth as the hero, it's jail. It's jail. And that comes from the pen of Deborah, does it not? I mean, look at it. And, and you can try all you want to water down the, the, the praise that goes to her, the blessing that goes to her. Two people are blessed in this text, jail and God. And if you want to water down that blessing and say, well, God, use this vile instrument and whatever, you can, you can do that. I think you've missed it. I think the text is clear. She is a hero for what she's done. In this song, God is praised because the leaders led, not because Deborah led. God is praised because the leaders led, and when they did, Israel followed. So you can see my final point. Deborah does not take over when men don't lead. She inspires men to lead. There is a world of difference in those two statements. Many people come to this text and they say, when men are wimp, women just have to take over. And they think this text validates it. Well, Barak was a wimp. I'll grant you that. She did not take over. She fulfilled the mission that God had given to her. She was a prophetess. And so she spoke for God because God spoke through her. And she writes for God in a way that inspires courage and boldness on, on, on Israel's part. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she is not an example of let's take over when the men wimp out. Well, there's a lot of things we could say, but my time is up, so I want to say something just about leadership, if I can, which will be on the last part of my last frame. This text is a challenge to all of us, is it not? 
to rise up to leadership. When Israelite men, when the princes rose up, and I would start with Barak. When Barak, even in his weak and failing way, when he stood up and summoned the two tribes to go to battle, there were people who were emboldened by his courage. When it was evident that God was with them and he gave them a great and mighty victory, that emboldened others. And so what you see is sort of this this uh, popcorn effect that when God begins to work and people begin to exercise courage and they step out in faith, other people are emboldened in their faith and they begin to engage in the battle. And all of that is to the glory of God. God is glorified when leaders lead and when people follow their lead. Isn't that what the text says? That's why God is praised here, because leaders led. What a wonderful task it is for women to inspire men to lead. That's a biblical thing, and I'll put you one step further. It's also the task of men. Good leaders are men who inspire others to step forward. Good leaders inspire leadership. They don't usurp it. They don't become dictators. They inspire other people to courage and leadership. I have to say to you, I, the application to our church is just so apparent, I, I, just, I just can't get over it. We live in days when our resources are thin. We live in days when the restrictions are starting to move in on us just like they were upon Israel. 40,000 men and there wasn't much armor there. Why in the world would you gather where Sisera is going to come with his chariots and take you on? Because God is with us. Because God has commanded us to act and he has told us, I am with you and you will be victorious. So I say to you, this is a time for individuals to step forward. And I believe, for instance, one instance of that leadership is, is in the meeting of the church as, we, as we're at the Lord's Supper. What a beautiful opportunity that is for men to lead. That's what it's about, for men to lead. And when other people see men stepping forward and taking leadership and seeing how God blesses that and works through them, you know what they say? Maybe I could do something like that too. It inspires others to lead also. Now, I pray that we'll be, as elders in this church, that we'll be those kinds of leaders. Because you notice there are tribes. It isn't just individuals who are leaders. It's tribes who lead. I pray that our elders will be men who inspire all of us to step forward because God is at work in their lives and we can see it. And we say, I want to be with them. And I pray that God will use us as a church like he used the tribes. Use us as a church to be those who step forward and say, here's what God has called us to do. No, we don't have the resources. In fact, maybe God took those resources away from us so that we wouldn't rely on them, but we would rely on him. The people of God who obey him and step forward will find God is all the resource we need. And as we do it, other people will be emboldened in their faith. That, I believe, is what this text says to us. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Deborah and for Jael and, and even for the way in which you use uh, Barak when he finally steps forward 
to encourage others. May we encourage one another to step forward and to lead and to act in those areas where you have placed us to your glory and to the encouragement of others. In Jesus' name, amen.